come, Lord, into us. Be a part of our lives. Dwell in us. That we would be excited about a personal relationship with him. And so I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Mark, the 11th chapter, verse 7 through 10, so we can just kind of have a reflection and a backdrop as we listen to the message today titled, Come, Lord. Come, Lord. See, in the book of Mark, this 11th chapter, we see a lot of things about Jesus being king and Jesus coming and establishing his kingdom. And so we get to the book of Mark in the 11th chapter, and we see words written in verse 7 through 10. And would you read with me from the King James Version, it says this, And they brought the coat to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he set upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, it's so important as we, as we meditate on this passage of Scripture and what's going on during this time to set the stage or the setting of of how it came to this point. So I'd like you to just go on a journey with me, that we would walk a journey of seeing God's divine plan and and how uh, precious it is to each and every one of us. This is important to provide so that we can understand the significance of this passage and this moment. This is a great moment for the people of God. This is a great moment for God's creation. It's a great moment for us to see Jesus and his victory. See, Jesus and the disciples arrive in Jerusalem a week before the crucifixion. And Jesus begins the last days of his public ministry before he is crucified. We see this description and this depiction of a triumphal entry of a king. As if a king is coming from battle or is going into battle for us, for his nation, for his people. And so we see this depiction of Jesus coming in on a coat and this triumphal entry of them laying down the palm trees. But before we got to this point, see, the people had been perishing. They were lost. They were broken. And so... Approximately 400 years prior, God gave this prophetic word to be spoken by Zechariah. And so if you return with me to Zechariah, the ninth chapter, verse 8 and 9, we are able to see the promise of God to send a Savior for Israel. After being allowed to come back from Babylonian captivity, they are trying to reestablish their homeland and they're, 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 they're grieving over the destruction and over the separation from God. And so Zechariah is giving this prophetic word, this word from God in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 8 and 9. Listen with me. The word of the Lord says, I will camp around my house. See, God was making a statement there that this was his house, that this was his people, These are the, that he loved his creation. 
and that he would camp around the house, that he knew that there were some enemies because of the army. And we can look at that and see that there is, there is an evil army, army. Satan has an army and it's coming against all of God's creation, all of God's people. And then he goes on to say, because of him who passes by and him who returns. And so as we think about that, that scripture there, maybe it was God reflecting on the devil as he roams like a lion seeking whom he can devour. He passes by throughout the whole earth seeking to devour. And maybe as we look at, and he who returns, we can reflect on the scripture in the book of Luke that talks about when Jesus gave the parable and gave the words of a man who has an unclean spirit. And that spirit is cast out. But there is nothing replaced in that house. That house is swept and clean. And we can remember as we look through the Old Testament that many times the Israelites were able to go before the altar and sacrifice before God. But it wasn't the eternal sacrifice. It was only temporary. And so they would be clean for a moment, but then comes back all that evil and wickedness. It returns. And so Jesus gives this reflection that it's worse than when the first devil left. And then we look at Zechariah 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 8, a little more. For no more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I have seen with my eyes. See, God always knows the depravity and the brokenness of sin, the destruction that it can cause. But now he's seen it with his eyes. And it broke his heart of how easily it besets us, how easily we get entangled and ensnared, and that we are like slaves brought down into prison. And so he gives this verse in, in, in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. He will deliver you. He will set you free. He will save you. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a coat, the foal of a donkey. This is how you'll know and be able to recognize because it was prophesied 480 years before. And so God is saying, I will give you this salvation. Your king is coming. Be patient. Wait for your deliverance. But then we see a season where Jesus has come. He's been, and all of us know the Christmas story of Jesus being born and coming into the earth uh, and how that was a great time and a great uh, event. But we also know as Jesus was growing up, uh, there were many kind of pricking and touching him and saying, is it now? Is it now? And Jesus responded on occasion. He says that my time has not come yet. See, there's a season for everything. There's a time for everything. See, during the powerful sermon that we heard last week, we heard about the Passover and how 
God delivered the Israelites by the blood of the lamb that was placed upon the door. And just like those Israelites, we have been delivered by the blood of the lamb that was shed for you and I. And so we remember in the book of Mark that, that, that John was the one that was to be the foreteller, the, the, the herald, the one that would say your king is coming. That he's, he's on his way, make straight the gates, get your heart right, repent, turn away from the things of this world, and prepare for the coming king. In Mark, the first chapter, verse 3, we read it, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The season, and maybe some of you have sat here and you've been sitting and waiting for the season to start with LSU, the season to start with, with, with the New Orleans Saints. But there's a season that God was saying, get ready, get ready, he's coming. He's coming. Make straight the gates. And then we see also that, that John saw him. He saw him from afar off. He saw him, and he saw the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, of the world. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God that take away the sins of the world. And so Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, he made some very angry, but he made many aware of God's fulfillment of his promises saying in Mark, the first chapter, verse 15, we see the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is, is, is all those that would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because he is king. He says, repent ye and believe the gospel. So for three years, Jesus went about teaching and preaching the gospel. For three years, Jesus went about saving the sick, healing the sick, causing the sight to be restored to the blind, the lame to walk. So much so that they said, we have never seen anything like this. And they shouted and they gave him praise. But we know that he would just cross the river and he would go across the sea just in a moment and then there would be those that would deny him that he wouldn't be able to do any mighty work in his own hometown. That they said, who is this, the carpenter's son? That they turned their back on him. That they resisted him as king and savior and lord. And then he would go to other places, but he kept going. If they didn't want to hear him in the synagogue, he would go to the village. He would go to the city. He had compassion on the 5,000 that came in the desert land and heard him preach and teach the gospel that he fed them with just five loaves and two fishes. And he went about daily ministering. He went about building faith. He went about restoring and strengthening his disciples. So that when they were in the water at one time, they, they, were, they were so frightened that they thought they were going to be destroyed. And he said, peace be still. And so Jesus continued to turn hearts through those three years. 
And then in Mark, the sixth chapter, verse 54 and 55 and 56, we see that they knew him. It says, and when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Ran through that whole surrounding in that region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever he was. See, they couldn't contain themselves. They had heard about this man called Jesus. And they had seen him do the wonderful works of God. They got to a point where they just wanted to be around him, wanted to just touch the hem of his garment. They pressed through to touch him. They pressed. That when he got out of the boat, they immediately recognized him. See, that didn't happen in a moment. That didn't happen in one day. It was his loving, outreached hand upon them, his care for them. His willingness to save them. They ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was, wherever he entered into the villages and cities or the synagogue or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. As many as touched him were made well. See, that was an undefeated season. And they saw Jesus. But see, then there was a transition after Jesus had spent this time preparing and, and ministering and teaching. There was a transition in the last days of his ministry. Now remember, he said, greater works you shall do. And so on those final days or weeks, he took the disciples and they went to a certain place called Caesarea Philippi. And there's something that we need to understand about Caesarea Philippi. Would you turn with me to Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 13 through 19? See, with every war or battle, there is a clear and decisive objective. See, in this passage of Scripture, we see that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 13, it Begins by reading, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, the Son of Man? And verse 14, so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Ye are, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, let's stop there for a moment and just reflect on that and think about that. See, Jesus has taken them to 
an area, a city, a region where there was the predominantly Greek culture. This is the place where Herod the Great built his, bell, his temple and his place of Baal worship. This is the place where Greek gods were established. And in this same place, this is the place where hundreds, if not thousands, of children were sacrificed on the altar of these pagan gods. This is also the place near Caesarea Philippi where there was the city of Dan, where the northern king who had become king, King Jeroboam, he looked about the people and he said, you know what, they're going to turn away from me. They're going to they're gonna turn back to God if I don't do something, and then they'll come and revolt and try to kill me. So he says, I'm going to build golden calves, just like the ones that were built back in Moses' day. And so he built two golden calves, and one of these golden calves, he set on the mount in the city of Dan, which is also that same region of Caesarea Philippi. And they worshipped idol gods. They worshipped this, this golden calf. So much so that the, the, the Levites, the priesthood, came and killed over 3,000 of these idol worshipers. But see, in this city of Caesarea Philippi, that was primarily located at the base of a cliff, that they had these high mountains and these stones, and they would take and they would put all, carve in all of their idol gods into these stones. And they had a place that they would use to sacrifice and worship and do all manner of evil. And so Jesus, it's believed that he brought them to this area. He allowed them to see this depravity, this destruction. He allowed them to see these rocks and these stones. See, Caesarea is known as the city of pagans. And at the base of a cliff where several stone statues are carved into the rock and into the stone, these large rocks and cliff formations also had caves that went down into the earth, known to be where the, the, the god of fertility, the god pain, believed to be where his home was in the winter. And so these caves, they would offer sacrifice and they would offer uh, people and children upon the altar to entice Pan, the fertility god, to come back up. And so this was a gateway, or it was considered the gates of hell, to where these idol gods would come out of these caves or these gates to dwell with the people. And so we see a picture here. We see a backdrop. God is doing something here. Jesus brings, after three years of being with the disciples, he brings them to this place that is known as the gates of hell. See, this is not a place that devout Jews would go to. They would avoid this place. It, was, it, it wasn't sanctified. It wasn't you know, outwardly pleasing in their sight so they wouldn't go. They would stay away from these type of cities. And so Jesus, standing in the midst of the disciples, he asked them, who do men say that I am? 
And then with their natural understanding, they gave a couple of names that were being said about him, about him being Elijah, about him being a prophet, about him being John the Baptist. And then he asked them this question. After being with him for three years, after seeing his teaching and his preaching and his wonderful works and how he allowed them to be a part of the ministry of going out, seeking and reaching. He says, but who do you say that I am? And then we hear Peter utter these words. You are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. You are not like these dead statues. You are not like dead men's works. You are not those that come and worship without any fruit, that worship a dead God, but you are the son of the living God. And so Jesus turns to him. He says, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock. See, we need to understand that. See, Peter's name in the Greek means Petros. And that's the, the, the definition of a, of a rock or a stone, but it's the definition of a little rock. And he says, and upon this rock or this stone, which is Petra, so he was making a distinctive difference between the two because Petra means a large rock. See, Petros is a shifting, rolling, or insecure stone, while Petra is a solid, immovable rock. So now you have this picture. They're standing in this place while there is evil all around them. There is brokenness all around them. And Jesus utters these words. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, we're not going to allow the enemy to defeat us. We're not going to allow the enemy to destroy us. We will go into his place, and we will be victorious. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 reminds us, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so he says those words, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. See, maybe we've had some awe shockers on that. Because as we've looked at that scripture at times, you know, we could think, you know, that that rock he's talking about, that stone is Peter. And then we can look at it and say that that rock or stone is our belief, that, that, that Peter had belief upon the Lord. But we know for sure that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, that he is the rock of ages. 
And now he pitches on this place. He's standing on this rock. He's standing on this stone. He said, I'm going to build my church right at the gates of hell, and it shall not prevail. That we will be on the offense, and they will be on the defense. See, Jesus gave a clear challenge. He said, challenge to not hide, but storm the gates of hell. That we press forward. That we don't focus and look on the things behind us, but we press towards the mark of the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. That we take on the war, we take the war to the enemy. We go to the center of his power because his power is not greater than his power. So we're on the offense. Our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty towards God, to the pulling down of strongholds, those evil strongholds, and lifting up righteous strongholds. So they are from heaven to bind the works of the devil and to loose the blessings of God. And so with all that said, we look a little bit farther in the book of John, we see that Jesus, and in this passage in the book of book of Mark, it's just a few days, maybe a week or so before he enters into Jerusalem. See, he was prophesied that the king will come. He spent three years convincing the world that he was king. He took his disciples and he says, the playoffs is here. <laughs> The victory is won. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And so we look at Mark the 11th chapter a little bit different. We see a triumphal entry. We see a sacrifice of celebration. See in verse 7 and 8 it says, And they brought the coat to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and the others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them with the way, in the way. See the triumphal entry where they put the branches upon the ground. So they were finally acknowledging and following Christ as King and as Lord. See, this act of taking off and putting before him was an act of taking off themselves, an act of praise, an act of, of, of giving over their way to his way. See, look what Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 20 through 24 tells us. But you, ha you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which is created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. So this Palm Sunday. The entering of Jesus into Jerusalem 
we see the culmination of his purpose and his plan. They see their king. They see their Lord. And they put off this world. See, the placing of the garments and the branches on the ground signifies those who lose their lives to save it. They put off the garment of the former behavior of the old man by divesting themselves of the envy and the strife and the hatred so that they may put on Christ and his righteousness who comes to clothe us with the garments of salvation in order to enter into the joy of what we hear, that we don't just hear the gospel, but we receive it and we respond to it. We put off this world and we say, Abba, Father, I accept you. See, we must lose our thoughts. We must lose our own ways for his thoughts and his ways. Yes, saints of God, there would be those that will hate you for it. See, we even see the Pharisees hated. In the book of John, the 12th chapter, Verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Look at it. The world's going after this guy. We're not gaining. We need to destroy his works. We need to stop what he's doing. And in that very same chapter, chapter 12 of John, verse 25 and 26, he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. See, the Pharisees loved this world and loved their life. But Jesus reminded us, those that love this life shall lose it. Those that hate this life in this world shall keep it even unto eternal life. So the king, the garments represented that we're laying ourselves before our king. That we're worshiping him. That we're trusting him. And verse 9 and 10 tells us, And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he, blessed be the kingdom of our father David, that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He has come. The word Hosanna in the Hebrew means, save now, save us, we pray. We believe that you are the king, that you are the lion of the lineage of David, that you are the covenant promise that God has made. And so we sing and we shout, come Lord, save us now. See, there was a reality that he was coming, but maybe they forgot. 
maybe over the years, the 480 years since the prophetic message, that their ears had grown weary, that their sight had come dim, that maybe they thought that that was so 1990s, that that's out of culture, that's, that, that, that's the old-fashioned stuff. And maybe they heard, they said, I've heard that before. Yeah, they said that he was this guy, and this guy was coming, and that guy was coming. But I saw it for myself. I heard and I could sense it. Did not our hearts burn within us? Did not we be in awe of this man, this carpenter's boy? So much so that all we could do is run to him. That his love compels us. See, by saying, oh, Hosanna, as Jesus passed through the gates of Jerusalem and referring to David and David's kingdom, the Jews were acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. That he is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. The Jews had been waiting a long time for the fulfillment of David's covenant and their shouts of Hosanna in the highest indicated that we believe that you can save us because you are most high and none like you. See, it indicates the hope that their Messiah had finally come to set up God's kingdom and to bring victory over their enemies. See, saints of God, he is king over everything. They knew it because he proved it. See, our Lord was, is, and always will be on the offense for you and I. That he came. And he's asking us to be willing to shout, Come, Lord, to me. Come, Lord, into my life. Save me now. Save me to the uttermost. Every fiber of my being. Break the strongholds. Set the captives free. All those who call upon your name will be victorious because you are king. Hosanna, save now, Lord. Come, Lord. He's closer in our very breath. We feel him all around us. Now let it be in us so much that we are shouting 
We are laying before him. We are crying out, Hosanna, save now, Lord, all around you. Save now, Lord. This is the day of salvation. I surrender all to you. And I guarantee you, saints, he will in no way let us down. And he is victorious.